Hey everybody, welcome to the Science Facts and Fallacies podcast brought to you by the Genetic Literacy Project. I'm your host, Cameron English. And I'm your co-host, Kevin Fulta, a professor who cares about science communication. This is the weekly show where we discuss the biggest stories from the Genetic Literacy Project to keep you informed about groundbreaking developments from the world of science and medicine, and of course, to help you separate facts from fallacies as you read the headlines. everybody welcome back to science facts and fallacies episode 193 very excited to be here with my good friend dr kevin folta as always kevin how are you today Woo-hoo, we're having good time time for a talk science <laughs> <laughs> we are going to talk science and you guys are never going to understand that inside joke because i'm not going to tell you what is I, that there, there was an inside joke <laughs> Exactly. It's so, it's so I, inside, I don't case. even get it. Even the guy who's in on it doesn't get it. That's how good and secretive this joke is. There is one thing I did want to talk about, Kevin, and this is just the incidental things that pop up in life. The other day, my wife, who is a high school science teacher, sends me a text out of the blue and she says, you have a problem with EWG, right? I'm like, EWG? She can't mean like the the bastard money-grubbing environmental group, EWG. So I said, what's EWD? EWG. And she sends me a link to their website. And I said, yeah, they're they're horribly dishonest. You can't trust anything. What what are you looking up their website for? And she says, oh, well, we're we're doing an assignment on chemicals in um, cosmetic products. And so one of my colleagues wanted to use their database of stuff that, you know, is bad for your skin. And I said, yeah, that, that don't, don't do that. <laughs> let's, let's go find the, whatever ingredient you're looking at and we'll go to the FDA's website and we'll just look up the literature. And then later on, I explained why I wanted to do that. And she's like, oh yeah, well, I'm glad I, I sent you that text. So my only point in all of this is that what we do here really makes a difference. Obviously my wife knows what I do for a living, um, but it's good, you know, and that's just one very small example. There's 35 high school students now who are going to do an assignment based on good research instead of the crap that EWG puts out. So all I'm saying is it matters when you have these conversations with people. It does. And that's why we need to have more of them. And why when I tell people, you know, engage and just have those discussions and then they look at me like I'm nuts. um, I, I get a little disappointed because the problem we have is asymmetrical. You have uh, uh, RFK Jr. going out and getting 45 minutes on the Adam Carolla show to go, you know, talk to millions of people about his insane view on everything and just make stuff up. And there's nobody there to counter it. And even online, there's nobody who's really commenting to that audience. And it makes it really, really hard to want to keep being debunkers. But, um, you know, it's, it would be so much more fun to share the beautiful things that are happening in science than to be constantly playing defense against garbage. I kind of get a kick out of it. I think it takes all, all kinds, right? It takes a science village, if you will, because <laughs> the, the people, the, like the people that my wife works with, very intelligent, you know, they teach science to our kids, but even they look at what yeah. EWG does and they go, oh, well, this is, this is legitimate. You know, they have a nice sure. website and look at, you know, they use all the fancy terminology. So even people with education get fooled by this stuff. And that's, oh, yeah. it's just that they're busy, you know, it's not that they're incapable of understanding it, but. You know, it's important to keep doing this. That's that's all I'm saying, Kevin. No, that's very true. Very true. All right, so we got three stories as always. Let's dive into these. First up, air pollution linked to greater risk of obesity in women. 
Next, and this is really good news, Kevin. India approves first genetically modified crop in 20 years. Herbicide tolerant cotton and mustard. I guess those would be two crops. Whoever wrote that headline. <laughs> and finally, <laughs> will biological push notifications from weight loss gadgets keep people on track with their diets? An intriguing question. But first up, Kevin, mm -hmm. air pollution and obesity. What are your thoughts? Yeah. Here? Well, this is an article by Jared Wadley in, uh, that was comes from a press release that came from University of Michigan School of Public Health. And what they've looked at, and this was a group of researchers that took a group of women who started this experiment uh, as a cohort analysis. So they all went together uh, into this analysis when they were about 50 years old and a uh, group in their 40s and 50s or maybe, you know, 50 was the uh, median age, and they tracked them for eight years, and then that tracked all their metrics, uh, everything simply from like race and income and all that good stuff to how much they smoke, drink, and everything else. And they looked at the questions around weight loss. And one of the associations they found that was particularly intriguing was their exposure to air pollution seemed to associate with being a little bit heavier, a little bit higher fat content. And it wasn't really big numbers, but it was, you know, it was a little bit. And uh, this was, um, uh, but mostly the exposure to uh, nitrogen dioxide, ozone, and fine particle pollution. So they did this based upon maps and surveys that basically outlined what areas were highest pollution. And it, it they, the real report at like the end, it says, well, the real numbers when they report this was a body fat increase by 4.5% or about 2.6 pounds. <laughs> so, you know, all right, 2.6 pounds. I, I can vary at 2.6 pounds with a pizza. Um, it, it's not, <laughs> you know, and they say a, a greater risk of obesity. 2.6 pounds does not an obese woman make. And so it just was a little curious to me how they got there. And, uh, but nonetheless, it, it was, um, it's in, you know one of these deals where an association comes out that may be a rather minor one, but makes an interesting headline. Yeah, I uh, I have to play bad cop here, Kevin, and I just have to say this is not a very good study, and uh, very little of the research on on these kind of questions is good. The, these associations between uh, pollution and obesity, or pollution and cardiovascular disease, and stroke, and so forth. What, what happens many times, and I, by the way, I, just to, for full disclosure, I wasn't able to get access to this paper because it's not indexed anywhere or it wasn't available through any of the databases I can access, and I emailed the authors. They didn't email me back. So I was only able to look at the abstract, but I was able to look at the underlying data for the study, and I was able to look at other research that had been done previous to this. And generally what you'll find is that they're using self-reported health measures, and the, the study it came from, this is called the... Um, the SWAN study, a study of women's health across the nation, and it, there's a little over 3,000 women involved in this, and most of them are, are deceased because they were recruited into the study in 1994, and they were like 50 years old, and so, you know, mo you, know you only live for so long. So it's a very limited data set, but you have these women self-reporting their dietary habits, their exercise habits, all the same stuff we talk about with epidemiology, and then you're using... Um, transient measurements of pollution. So you might have like, you know, like when you look at the weather report, they'll tell you about the air quality for your city for that day. They're using those kind of very specific measurements and they're trying to co draw correlations between um, obesity and pollution, for example. 
So, so th- there's like, there's a lot of loosey goosey sort of statistical footwork that this requires that I'm always skeptical of. And you can see that in the literature because many of these studies contradict one another. So you will find some, even in very polluted places like Beijing and other cities in China, high pollution um, and lower obesity rates, you know? So sometimes the correlation isn't even there. In, in developed countries like the United States, obesity is increasing as everybody well knows, but pollution has it's, it's not at zero, but it's substantially lower than it was owing to improvements in technology and, you know, regulations that have been put in place that reduce tailpipe emissions and so forth. So I have more to say, but I'll stop there, Kevin. There's just, I'm very deeply skeptical of this, this kind of research. Oh, I agree with you. I think you're 100% right. Because in the way to really make this a strong correlation, or I mean a stronger association, would be if, if women were monitoring the air in their homes or in their uh, in their re- regions and, you know, indoor air is different than outdoor air and you know, all the other things that we could talk about uh, that are variables in this kind of uh, study that unless you have a really strong outcome that's significantly different, it's really hard to say that there's causality. And that was kind of my point with this kind of minor change of, they say 4.6%. But, you know, that, that's, uh, they say 2.6 pounds. It's, it's not much, it's not a very big difference. And so to say that this is what's associating tightly with uh, pollution rates, it, which, are, which can be really wobbly, as you say, it makes, makes me really skeptical. I wrote to the authors, too, and I didn't get a copy of the paper. So I kind of fly in by what I was able to access online. And uh, otherwise, I, I agree with you 100%. I, I think it's really kind of a, one of these things that we have to be very careful of because people see this, it makes the rounds on the news, and we don't, uh, and, and they're making decisions and passing along bad information. Just parenthetically, I do find it amusing that these studies come out and they, they garner all of this media attention. The headlines are really dramatic. Pollution leads to 850,000% increase in obesity. And when people like Kevin and I reach out to the authors, like, hey, can we? look at your paper so we can talk about it in more depth. They, they don't re- reply, <laughs> you know? And then if you go to the journal's website, this was published in diabetes care and to access this article it would have cost like 35 or 40 bucks. And I just refuse on principle to spend $40 on a stupid epidemiology paper, but I, uh, it's a whole nother topic, but it's just funny, right? This, this information about this drastic public health crisis we're facing is locked away behind a paywall <laughs> and uh, you know, just trust us. I find that bothersome. One other thing I'll say before before we move on, Kevin, they, th- there's no way to know, like, what's the mechanism? How exactly does pollution increase your risk of obesity? And I looked at some of the other studies, and they'll say things like, well, see, you know, exposure to uh, particulate p- pollution, for example, get into your lungs, and then it can trigger infl- inflammation and oxidative, sh- oxidative stress. And when you're obese, um, that causes inflammation as well. So you can have sort of like a like a, a compounding effect. That could be a possibility. Another one is that when there's pollution outdoors, you stay inside and you don't exercise as much. You know, so it's all of these speculative things that are possible, but it's not enough to generate headlines. It's just, it's, I hate the phrase, if, if it bleeds, it leads, but that's all this this really is. You know, it's just people are going to click on this headline just like we did, and now we're talking about it, you know? <laughs> so there's no, there's not really any good science here is all I'm saying. No, well put. Yeah, it, 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 but that's why it was important to highlight. So Yeah, yeah. Okay, now in much better news, we're talking about India improving some GE crops. What's going on here? 
Yeah, when I read about um, them approving herbicide-tolerant mustard, I thought, well, this is, or no, genetically engineered mustard. I thought, now this is a new one if we only had genetically engineered ketchup, right? Uh, Yeah, we could have the the cadre of genetically engineered condiments. Uh, But this is mustard, meaning like mustard, like the mustard greens, which really are uh, brassica gentia, Indian brassica, or brassica gentia? Yeah, yeah. Um, India brassica juncea is an oilseed crop, kind of like canola. And canola also is in the brassicaceae family, and it has the uh, same idea of as high oil seed. And it's very important in Indian cooking. So this mustard seed is a big deal. And they approved two crops. There's herbicide-tolerant cotton and this mustard, which is also herbicide-tolerant, but a little bit different. So let's talk about what's going on here. The big deal was that, oh, and this was by... Harveer Singh in Rural Voice, Rural Voice of India. And uh, the big deal is, is that we think about genetically engineered crops in India. We only think about one thing, and that's genetically engineered uh, cotton, BT cotton. And this is the one that makes its own insecticidal protein that limits the need for insecticidal sprays because it's uh, it's cotton that protects itself. And it was very successful, as we've seen through two decades of use in India that uh, that has increased uh, household incomes and all the other good things that have come from that. That's pretty solid. Um, <laughs> unless you talk to some people who says it makes people kill themselves. Um, but uh, that's, you know, that's Vandana Shiva and other folks. The big deal is that this has been a very, very good thing for the Indian farmer. And unfortunately, these were the last crops approved in 2002. So they've gone 20 years without approval of something else. And in that time, you know, we've watched this bang around that there's been discussion about this thing, this GE mustard. This has gone on since, I don't know, probably the last 10 years that this has been on the table and discussed. And the beauty of what the GE mustard is, is this. You get a very strong response from hybrid mustard. So you get a, uh, um, you know, one kind and, you know, cross it with another, you can get a 30% yield increase because of the heterosis or the hybrid vigor that comes from that. And how do you get mustard to cross is pretty tricky. You got to tear off all the, you have to emasculate the male on one side, tear off all the male parts. And then that way the pollen from the other guarantees that you'll have an outcross. All right, because pollen has to come from somewhere, comes from the other mustard. But you can't do that in a, you know, thousand acres of, of mustard. So what you could do is go to this phenomenon called male sterility. And there's a couple of different ways to induce male sterility, but there's one here that's quite nice. And this goes off of a system that's called, um, uh, uh, that's called um, Barnace and Barstar. These are the two proteins that are happening here. There's one that is a barnase is this um, uh, ribonuclease. So it's a, it's a uh, enzyme that breaks down RNA and breaks down uh, RNA that's necessary for fertility in the uh, pollen as it it germinates. And so barnase, if it's present, will make the pollen sterile or make the plant um, unable to be fertilized with that pollen. So it's male sterile. Bar star is what's called the uh, restorer. 
and Bar Star, if Bar Star, not the former Packers quarterback, <laughs> no, Bar Star, not Bart Star, restores the ability to be pollinated. So if you do this, if you have Barnace in one line being expressed as a genetically engineered event, and in the other line have Bar Star, as that pollen comes over and fertilizes that uh, that plant, the one that is male sterile now can get pollen from somewhere else that's completely viable because the bar star inactivates barnase. So one's got the inhibitor. The other one's got the inhibitor of the inhibitor, if that makes sense. So when the pollen comes over, now you can have a fertilization event and restore the function of that pollen. So you're guaranteed, almost guaranteed, um, outcrossing, and now you can make uh, hybrids. And this is a no-brainer. This is a most wonderful thing. And you get higher yields from those from those uh, hybrids. The other gene that's being introduced is three genes, which unfortunately is called BAR. has nothing to do with Barnase or BAR-STAR. Um, BAR is a selectable marker. So BAR uh, confers resistance to the herbicide glufosinate. So it means that you can spray the hybrids with glufosinate and only the ones that are true hybrids will survive. And that any of the plants that were self-fertilized by, you know, by escapes are not fertilized. So what it does is it allows you to make seed for hybrid mustard, which is really cool. So your yields go up 30%. That's a big deal for, um, for Indian farmers and pretty damn cool. So, you know, we can talk about cotton in a minute, but any thoughts on that mustard part? I always like it when you go into the plant genetics and you explain exactly what's going on. Because it just it shows you why this is so important, and it's so practical too, right? It's 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 a trait that farmers benefit from, and they've wanted this for years. I know, particularly with cotton, they've been very vocal in protesting. You know, they go into a very public place and they plant the seed, and they go, "What are you going to do? Arrest us? Go for it, bro!" <laughs> it's just, I you know, I, I admire that kind of courage and tenacity. But in any case, what I'm really wondering is what changed over the last. 20 years. Obviously, we've had these protests in recent years. Um, I, I, I suspect it has something to do with inflation around the world and energy shortages, which drives up the cost of everything, including food. Um, do you have any insight into what's changing in India right now? Well, the funny thing is, it's probably because it's already happening, whether they like it or not. <laughs> and, and well, with the cotton, so the cotton is an herbicide tolerant cotton. They've only had the BT cotton, not the herbicide tolerant one. And the herbicide tolerant one allows farmers to plant the cotton or spray an herbicide over the top, like glyphosate or glufosinate and have the cotton continue to grow and kill the weeds around it. And this is a real big benefit for lots of reasons. Farmers have wanted it, but um, it hasn't been approved. It hasn't been allowed. Other countries have it. And um, up to 30% of the cropland in India is currently being cultivated under herbicide-resistant cotton grown illegally. So bottom line is farmers want it. They're going to get the technology they want. They're going to grow it, and they're going to use it to its potential. And so regulators kind of are throwing up their hands in disgust here and saying, okay, we'll go ahead and do it. And I, I think that's uh, that's probably what happened there. The mustard, this one's been around forever. I mean, the the, the uh, male sterile mustards, I you know I would swear I saw papers for this back in the 90s. 
And it seemed like such a great idea. I, I maybe not that long, but it sure seems like it. I'm, yeah, I'm just encouraged overall by what's happening. And people sometimes complain that, you know, the fact that they're using it illegally, that you can't use that as a justification for approving it. But I actually think it's a really important point because basically what you're what you have there is you have the market, you have all the farmers who would purchase or do purchase these seeds. They're saying, no, this works. And then effectively them growing the crop are the field trials, <laughs> you know, and they're saying this works. We want it. And I really think that regulators need to take that into consideration more than they do. And this happens with a lot of things, you know, you see it sometimes with the FDA and, and experimental drugs and, um, you know, during prohibition, I think that's the most obvious example in the twenties when alcohol was outlawed and you still had alcohol everywhere. You know, you, you got a little less alcohol consumption, but you also got more murder and more gang wars. And, you know, it was just society was a little more destabilized as a result. So all I'm saying is it, it seems clear now that the benefits of this technology outweigh whatever risks you're worried about. And I think that's what you're getting at is they're regulators. Maybe they're upset that their authority has been usurped and they're sort of throwing up their hands. But if that's anything, it's an admission that this technology is okay, I think. Yeah, well, the other big part of this is that th that the argument of, well, this is all just you, f you know, buying seeds for Monsanto, you know, that argument's off the table here. Because not only is there no Monsanto, but, uh, but there's also uh, the patents are all expired on this stuff, and different companies have already made the, uh, have come up with other alternatives. And so other seed companies can participate in generating these cotton lines using the BT technology or the herbicide resistance technology. And there's nothing anyone can say about that. And so it's, this is all off patent. And the same thing with, um, uh, with the Barnace and Barstar, that is also another, you know, off patent technology. And so this is owned by the public and is a public, uh, a public effort, which means farmers are paying less for seed than if they had to buy them from a multinational seed producer. So this is a, a really good thing across the board. I can't imagine there's, well, I, I guess I can't imagine there's people who are still opposed to it. But the bottom line is, is this is eventually happening. What we predicted would happen is that you won't keep technology out of the hands of farmers who are just getting by. Because if it can improve their profits and their yields and everything by 10 to 20%, they're going to use it and, and they're going to benefit from it, whether you like it or not. And if everybody does it, how are they going to stop them? And, and so that, uh, you know, hats off to the Indian farmers who are, are making it happen. 100%. Yeah. By the way, the monopoly argument, it's always been stupid. Even when these seeds were on patent, <laughs> farmers still wanted them because they worked and Monsanto developed them because there was a market for them. So, so, you know, so there are arguments against patent protection and intellectual property and all that, but that's a different issue. And I think people are bringing those in to justify their ideological commitments, you know? So even if there was a giant single evil biotech company that was selling these seeds, if farmers want to buy them, that's none of your business, whoever you are. Okay. <laughs> Anyways. All right. Final story of the day, Kevin, biological push notifications from weight loss gadgets. Well, this last story is, is a really interesting one because of the current situations uh, in 
how we monitor blood glucose and other types of internal metrics. And this is by Hannah Norman with the Kaiser Family Foundation. And it talks about the idea of using phone apps to monitor uh, blood glucose levels. And this has been a revolution for diabetics. A lot of people who must know their blood glucose levels, they um, have monitors now where you don't have to do finger pricks. You can uh, use an, an onboard, well, an implanted monitor that now reports your blood glucose levels directly to your smartphone, which is really a real score for type 1 diabetics that need to know their, their blood sugar levels at all times. And uh, with um, type 2s, it takes away the constant finger pricks and having to worry about that. You can instantaneously know your blood glucose level. How this applies to the rest of us is that we really do know there's variation for how people respond to glucose or how people respond to blood sugar levels, I should say. And the idea of the after meal haze, the uh, fogginess you get or sleepiness that you get, the uh, weight gain and weight loss, you know, are all somewhat related to how this glucose may be metabolized when we choose to eat. All of these things, uh, may be of benefit to know for anybody, even if you're not diabetic. So that's the beauty of these apps is that it seems as though these are heading in that direction to provide a sense of here's how my body responds to uh, some sort of a, a carbohydrate. Here's what I get. And ultimately it allow the user to see patterns as to how that fits with weight loss and uh, or weight maintenance. And it also will probably eventually mesh with some AI tools. So you'll be able to start to get even a prescription of when to eat, what to eat, and how that would best serve your uh, blood sugar excursions to fit with a weight loss plan or weight maintenance plan. Um, it's all part of a whole new revolution that I think is here to stay. Um, they're talking about a huge investment of like $3.5 billion in this area and monitors that probably will be measuring uh, much more than the average Fitbit. Uh, you'll have uh, blood glucose, blood pressure, uh, heart rate, alcohol level, all that stuff probably be something just reported to your smartphone. So um, maybe something exciting that's coming really soon. I have an app, Kevin, for tracking my my calories and my macros because I'm trying to eat healthier these days and stay, stay as long as I can for my son, watch him grow up and all that. And it's a great tool. It's a, it's a, it's a validated database of all the foods that I eat and it tracks my weight, tracks my body fat percentage. I can get input from the company. So they have dietitians on staff so I can reach out and say, Hey, I can't hit my macros without going over my calorie limit. What do I need to do? And they can look at my data and then go, Oh yeah, you just need to eat more of this and less of this. And it's expert advice. It's great. It's absolutely worth the subscription that I pay for it. But the key is <clears throat> I'm motivated to use it. And there's been times in the past where I was paying for the subscription and I just had little interest in using it for one reason or another. And as a result, it didn't help me lose weight. So that's my first question here is, you know, with like type one diabetics or even type two in many cases, these people are motivated to monitor their blood sugar and monitor their eating habits because they understand the risk is very, very real. You know, it's not just oh, you know, 30 years in the future, this could be a problem. It's a problem for them today. So they're really good at monitoring it. But if you if you look at someone who is just obese or they're borderline obese or they're pre-diabetic, you know, they may not be experiencing very many symptoms of 
uh, eating a poor diet. So, so that's my first question. I, I, you seem to be enthusiastic about this technology. So I'm wondering, do you see people's lack of motivation being a problem here? Well, it is if it fails to motivate, right? And that's a kind of circular, <laughs> stupid question. Uh, stupid answer to your wonderful question. Um, but here's what I think. I, I mean, I do think that by having more information that's more detailed, that allows us to make more realistic associations, that what if you could follow an app that mattered? And that actually did result in weight loss or if you're trying to lose weight or improved weight maintenance by understanding something as simple as, you know, maybe I shouldn't fall asleep with dinner in my mouth. Maybe I need to be taking this on a little earlier. You know, what if this, so if this is something that can give us a personalized prescription for how, when, and what to be eating, I think this could be something that would be a real motivator because finally something that would instill a permanent lifestyle change based on empirical data, my data, you know, rather than just, you know, uh, Marie Osmond saying, here's what you should do. Uh, so, <laughs> which, you know, which I like when she does that. Uh, but you see where we're going. I, I think that this is an opportunity to look at the beginning of, we're seeing the beginning of personalized medicine as it'll visit us in the home. And I think we got to lean into it. I agree. I mean, the more tools that are available, the more options that people have, that's good. So for those who will take advantage of it, that's great. I'm just, at this point, I'm somewhat skeptical that we're going to make a real dent in obesity rates because of these. And one reason I was considering that is that in this article, they talk about the fact that there's very limited research on these different devices. Some of them are FDA approved because they meet some sort of, uh, you know, statutorily declared definition of a medical device and others are not FDA approved. And it's because the FDA just goes, yeah, we don't really feel like it right now. <laughs> and so yeah. in so many words, they, it's, I think it's called enforcement discretion where they're just allowed to say, that, you know, our priorities are different right now. Maybe that's justified because of COVID or what have you, but all that to say, you know, a lot of these are going to come onto the market. Some are going to be better than others. And, you know, maybe we know that some will work and others won't. I don't know. I, I do you just think this is going to get sorted out in the wash, so to speak? You know, some will work and those are the ones that are going to take off. Is that what you're getting at? Well, I think that's true. I mean, I, I think that you'll start to see the market sort this out just like they did with, you know, 23andMe and all of the home DNA kits. That stuff was all squashed by FDA too for a long time because people can't handle the truth, you know, that kind of thing. I think that these kinds of devices, this is this FDA cleared area where they're just not going to, they're going to choose to not regulate it. And it's one of these things where you'll see people participate and some things will work and some things won't. The big problem is, is that this will be a, a happy place for the affluent because these are really expensive and the subscriptions to them are quite cost prohibitive. Um, some of these are annual fees of what, $199, $350 a year, which just doesn't seem horrible bad for a healthier lifestyle. But um, some of them get to this, you know, a huge amount per month. And, you know, so maybe it's the kind of thing that time will bring this down, like the big screen TV, that as wearables become more and, and are more common and have more functionality, uh, this could be the kind of thing that just is, you know, this is just going to be the way it is going forward. Uh, the nice part about it is if you have all of, if you had all of this telemetry implanted, you could and you could even have your watch or your computer or your smartphone 
flag events like atrial fibrillation or, you know, issues that you didn't even know happened, uh, issues that, you know, maybe could be predicting other health outcomes. Uh, you know, your blood sugar is really different this year than it was last year. You know, I, I just think that this is something that it's the direction we're going and I think will be something to be very heavily supported. We shall see. We shall see. I, as a rule, though, I think more technology is a good thing. So hopefully we get some good results out of this. One thing I will mention just as we close here that I found funny is that a lot of the dietitians and the physicians they quoted in this article <laughs> were very skeptical of these and yes. they had some legitimate reasons. But I think it's funny. You know, it's the people that dispense advice about blood sugar and about weight loss who are like, you know, I don't know if these automated AI devices are so good for you because, you know, and I'm being cynical here, but my salary is dependent upon you coming to me for advice. So maybe, <laughs> maybe hold off on these. I just thought that was kind of a, kind of amusing. Not that they're yeah. all like that, but you know, incentives matter. So anyways, uh, who are you following on Twitter? Uh, Liza Dunn. Yeah. Dr. Dunn uh, at Dr. Liza, M-D, Dr. L-I-Z-A, M-D, D-R, L-I-Z-A, M-D. <laughs> so, so she, I think I probably recommended her before, but I really got to recommend her again. She is a trained uh, physician who went into toxicology. She's an emergency room experience and is an extremely good resource. She, she works for Bayer now, so it's one of those things oh. where... I know where people will disqualify her opinions because of who she works for. Yet she remains a very aggressively independent individual who is incredibly uh, has great resources and great ways to communicate them, which is why they hired her, I think. So uh, follow Dr. Dunn. I really think you'll enjoy that. So who are you following? I am following uh, a philosopher, interestingly enough. His name is Alex Epstein. And he's got a new book out and uh, I'm, I'm reading through this right now and it's making me feel dirty all over because he's saying a lot of things that I have been told over the years that you're not supposed to think. But it's called Fossil Future, Why Global Human Flourishing Requires More Oil, Coal, and Natural Gas, Not Less. So this is, this is intriguing stuff. If you choose to read this book, I think it's going to cause you a little cognitive dissonance. Just a, just a fair warning. But it's, uh, it's good nonetheless. And I think his perspective is um, it's not the typical, you know, climate denier thing that people have been led to, you know, led to believe like, gl like global warming is either occurring and we're causing it or it doesn't exist. <laughs> Those are your two choices. And I think his, per his perspective is more nuanced than that. It's an argument that I've never really contemplated before. So he is at Alec Alex Epstein on Twitter. Really interesting stuff. And that's going to do it for the week for us. You can follow us as well at Kevin Fulta at ACSH org on Twitter for my writing and follow genetic literacy project. They are at genetic literacy. They put this whole thing on. Thank you guys. As always, we'll be back next week for episode 194. We'll see you then. Mm -hmm.